Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. Minicoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out Minicoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guest is Patrick Newman. Patrick is an assistant professor of economics at Florida Southern College and a fellow of the Mises Institute. He's the editor of Murray Rothbard's The Progressive Era, published in 2017, and Conceived in Liberty, Volume 5, The New Republic, 1784 to 1791. That was published in 2019. But today he's here to talk about his latest book, Cronyism, Liberty versus Power in Early America, 1607 to 1849. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Tom. You've got such a, an interesting book here on so many levels because you're taking that golden age to some of us who'd like to see it that way when the government was barely existent, the markets were laissez-faire, and everything was just wonderful. And unfortunately, life is complicated. And <laughs> while some of what I just said is relatively true, a lot of what we deal with today is more of the same, it seems like. And maybe you could just start by giving an overview of why you wrote the book and what its thesis is. Sure. Yeah. So unfortunately, conditions weren't better in the past, though we like to we like to think of it like that. I wrote this book on cronyism, which I define as policies that benefit special interests at the expense of the public, because I was asked to write a book on the history of crony capitalism. Prominent donor of the Mises Institute, Hunter Lewis, asked me if I'd be interested in writing a history of crony capitalism. So I, I said, absolutely, I'd love to. I started working on this book right around when I finished editing Murray Rothbard's fifth volume of Conceived in Liberty, where he goes through sort of the conspiratorial origins of the U.S. Constitution. And so I, this is that was a natural jumping off point for me in, in, the, in the book. And basically took me about two years or so to write. It came out late 2021. The, the basic thesis of the book is that during this time period, American history can be understood as a clash between liberty and power. Right? So cronyism proposed by the forces of power 
was pervasive, but there was a significant libertarian contingent or coalition of Americans who were fighting special privileges. They could run politicians. These politicians could win office. They could win the presidency. They could even pass laws removing cronyism. So I argue that history during this time period is a struggle between these forces of liberty, such as the Jeffersonians and the Jacksonians, and the forces of power, the Hamiltonians, the Hamiltonian Federalists, the Whigs, etc. And when the forces of liberty had control of the government, cronyism declined. When the forces of power had control of the government, cronyism increased. I show that it's actually a more complicated than this because whenever the forces of liberty had power, excuse me, were in control of the government, cronyism went down before it started to increase again. And this was because the, these libertarians got corrupted by power. They started to focus on winning elections, expanding their coalition, et cetera. So cronyism declined and then it started to increase again. And reforming the government in the past and in the present is very difficult because of this corrupting nature of power. This is what I call the liberty versus power theory. And it really just kind of forms the backbone of my historical analysis. So one of the things I was glad to find, because I'm holding hands with you on this, I've heard a lot of people who associate conservatism with limited government try to paint people like Hamilton as proto-liberals or proto-progressives, when in fact you call them reactionaries, which is one step more extreme than conservatism. Why is that? Yeah, so good question. Originally, when I wrote the book, I was thinking about using the terms. I used the terms forces of liberty, forces of power, libertarian, statist. I was thinking about using the terms liberal and and conservative in the ways that they were originally conceived. So liberal really just meant what we would call classical liberal. They wanted to reform the system, reduce government cronyism. Conservatism uh, or conservative they were trying to conserve sort of the crony structure, defend it, right? Defend it against these these libertarians. And I decided that, well, it was going to be a little too confusing for the modern reader. And that's why I just used the term reactionary, which I think might be stronger, but it, it, it really gets at the point clear, more clearly. They were reacting against these major movements at the time to reduce cronyism, right? And I think it's important to at least remind the reader that this is how it was viewed back in the day, because I think sometimes we can view history using the you know modern terminology, which, which can be more confusing than clarifying. And I think your term is probably the most accurate, because to the extent that they had escaped the British mercantilist system that you describe in 1776... It really was kind of a reaction, a, a going back to rather than conservation that the Hamiltonians were up to at the Constitutional Convention, because even Jefferson saw that by the time 1800 came around, he called his election a revolution, a revolution of 1800. So obviously he thought that, that something had slipped back. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about the Constitution the way you see it as opposed to the way most patriotic right-wingers see it. 
Yeah, this is one of my favorite parts of the book because I think it's such shock therapy. Because when <laughs> we we think of the Constitution, we think of this limited government document. Oh, you got to uh, remember what the founders said, and they were trying to create this limited government constitution and look at all these safeguards and so on and so forth. And all the intervention that we've been doing since 1789 has really been a perversion of the constitution. I argue that that's not correct. I have a much more simple explanation that I think more accurately explains why we've seen such large increases in intervention since the constitution, that the constitution was not designed to be a small government document. It was designed to be a big government document. It was designed to allow the government to do many more things than the Articles of Confederation, right? And I go through this in my book, and I argue that, similar to Murray Rothbard, that the the vague clauses, so to speak, the necessary and proper, the general welfare clause, the, the, these clauses that had allow, have allowed the government to do so much because they've been interpreted that way, that's how they were intended to be used, right? They use these vague clauses, the Federalists, because it's a lot easier to pass something when all of the powers are sort of wrapped are sort of contained in a couple of words. You don't actually have to list them out. The, the founders were not stupid. You know, the, the Federalists, they realized they couldn't pass, they couldn't get people to accept this new government if it explicitly allowed Congress to charter a central bank. So instead, they just say, well, the powers are implied, right? This is why the anti-Federalists, the libertarians of the day, fought the Constitution because they recognized that it would be a big government document. Now, the Constitution only got its small government interpretation later in the 1790s by the same people who fought the Constitution originally. It was the anti-federalists. Thomas Jefferson was big in this, but he was away in France during when the Constitution was being drafted and ratified. So he wasn't really there, boots on the ground. But many anti-federalists, they had realized, they said, "Okay, we lost. The Constitution exists. How are we going to fight this thing? Well, we're going to interpret it in a way that will basically provide as many roadblocks and obstacles to to the statists, right? And that's that's exactly what they did, right? They said, okay, we're now going to argue that these all of these powers they have to be strictly, you know, everything has to be strictly construed or strict constructionism. This was all intentional, but this has gotten lost. In the succeeding decades, as people then just started to say, well, the Constitution is a small government document. It's that's not really true. It's it's a big government document that classical liberals have been able to interpret at various points in time to actually constrain government power. Let's take a short break for this important message. If you're enjoying the content here at Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, please check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash Tom Mullen talks freedom. You can become a supporter of the show at any level you wish, starting at just $3 per month. All members get machine transcripts of all podcasts and access to my members only MeWe group. If you're an all access patron, you'll also get special member only content, including exclusive blog posts and videos. And VIP patrons receive access to all my online courses and a free signed copy of the Tom Mullen book of your choice. So again, check it out at patreon.com slash Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. 
Become a supporter of the show today. And now let's get back to our episode. Laws that would probably jump out at most people and people that we like, like Judge Napolitano, have argued that the Commerce Clause is very narrow and that it was intended just to keep commerce regular. In other words, to make sure it was unimpeded. And I'd love for that to be true. (laughs) I had a Facebook friend, and I don't know who this gentleman was. I just remember it. This is probably seven, eight, maybe more years ago posted on one of my threads, he said, my law professor told me that you could drive a truck through the commerce clause. And that's what it really is. And so rather than just a prohibition on tariffs, I mean, if you look at the historical perspective, the king used to regulate commerce in all kinds of ways. You weren't allowed to manufacture things. You weren't allowed to do all kinds of things. How do you see it? Is it narrow or is this an, is it more true that you could drive a truck through it? I think it's true. You could drive a truck through it. Unfortunately, I'd love for it to be narrow. Sometimes people argue that, well, the the Constitution created a giant free trade zone by prohibiting tariffs, you know, from states from from levying tariffs on each other. The implication being that. Well, before the Constitution, we had this era where all sorts of states were erecting all sorts of trade barriers against each other. That's actually not true. The general trend was was actually for interstate competition to lower tariffs and for smuggling to lower tariffs. States couldn't really institute high tariffs on goods from other states. The big issue that uh, proponents of the Constitution saw with the articles is that the federal Congress couldn't create or couldn't institute tariffs, right? They, they couldn't pass, they needed unanimity to pass an impost law, a tariff law, which they could then use to start taxing goods that were imported from Great Britain. So the Commerce Clause was designed to really take power away from the states and then centralize it in the government, right? So to allow the government to pass navigation laws, you know, on other countries or to to regulate, you know, the goods being bought and sold between countries. Same thing with tariffs, right? To, to, to pass a stronger tariff against European goods and so on. So it was really, I view the I view the commerce clause as uh, to the extent it got rid of interstate tariffs and, and restrictions, it was unnecessary. Competition was already doing that. And it was much more nefarious because it centralized this power. It really monopolized this power. It made Congress the only one who can do it. And we look at the history of America regarding our tariff laws. Tariffs became much higher than what they ever could have been under the Articles, where around the Civil War and into the late 19th century, tariffs were 50%, right? So enormous taxes. So we've prepared people that we're not not afraid to call into question some of the motivations behind the Constitution. So I want to, of course, ask you about the very first huge violation of the Constitution from the perspective of people like us and Thomas Jefferson, which was the Bank of the United States. Talk a little bit about Washington's role. And I'll give the conventional wisdom. Washington was this 
ascendant figure who rose above politics. And although a federalist, he asked the opinions of both Hamilton and Jefferson and carefully considered this and then signed the bank into law. And he never told a lie. What's the real story? You know, the real story does not put Washington in as good of a light. It's one of my favorite stories that I talk about when people say, oh, you have an illustration of cronyism that you're talking about. So how are politicians working with special interests to loot the taxpayer? Well, before the, the, the whole debate, the brouhaha over the Bank of the United States, there was a, a brouhaha over the assumption of debts, right? So Hamilton was pushing through this controversial bill to to assume all the confederations debts and state debts at face value. And many proponents of small government were against this because they uh, that the, the that that legislation there was a compromise over it between Hamilton Hamilton Madison and Jefferson when basically the three of them agreed and they said look we'll assume the debts but we got to move the nation's capital or the location of the nation's permanent capital. And we're going to put it in Philadelphia for 10 years, and then we're going to move it to Washington, D.C., right? All right, fast forward to the bank bill. Hamilton's trying to push for a bank that Jefferson and others are criticizing. They're saying it's crony. They're saying it's going to increase the power of Northern capitalists connected with the government. This bank was going to be in Philadelphia. So now there's really going to be a capital, the the, the, the permanent capital will be in Philadelphia. So what happens is Washington asks Jefferson and Hamilton for their various opinions. Jefferson outlines what becomes known as the strict interpretation of the Constitution or strict constructionism, Hamilton broad constructionism. And Washington actually kind of sides with Jefferson. He says, okay, Jefferson's making a good amount of sense here. But the problem was the, the, the Federalists had an ace up their sleeve, which is how I describe it. And this was that at the same time, Washington wanted to move the location of the, 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 the future location of the nation's capital outside of this agreed upon boundary that Washington was given power to decide precisely where it would be in the so-called Residence Act of 1789. And he wanted to move it closer to his property near Alexandria. And Federalists said that, well, if we're going to amend the Residence Act to allow you to get a nice boost to your real estate values, you're going to have to sign the bank bill. And that's what happened. <laughs> so no. Washington Washington sold out. It's, it's not as nice of a story, uh, but it's the true story. It's that Washington said, okay, uh, we'll have the central bank because I feel more secure about where, our, uh, the, where the future capital is going to be because it'll be next to my property. And if you've ever seen Washington, D.C., I mean, Washington, he still has his house there. Yeah. He has a highway. He has his house there. Just imagine that if that house wasn't there and, the, and all sorts of other stuff nearby, how much lower property values would be. It's, it's, it's still, it's still you know, visible. His, 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 his mark on the nation's capital is still with us. The other thing that we think about besides Washington, and I think obviously most people know this was a human being, but I think they'd be still quite surprised by the story you just told. And the other one is our pal Jefferson there sounded great, very hardcore libertarian when he wasn't in power. But once he gets in there, the government building roads and doing all kinds of things, a little bit different story, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Jefferson's a great illustration of the corrupting nature of power. The big theme of my book and how power incentivizes people to engage in cronyism, because we think of Jefferson, he's this great libertarian writer. He wrote the Declaration of Independence, very big in the American Revolution. He was the presidential candidate of the Republicans, which is an organization or political party created in the 1790s to fight Hamiltonianism. There's this big election, this so-called Revolution of 1800, in which the Hamiltonian Federalists are driven out of power. And Jefferson, he, he takes office. The first administration of Jefferson, I'll give that high remarks. That was a good administration. He cut taxes. He at least made moves privatizing the national bank. He cut the, the, the central bank, excuse me. He cut tariffs. He cut military spending, et cetera. There was the Louisiana Purchase, which was a very big issue that I'll talk about in a second. But the second Jefferson administration is just a disaster. Government spending increased, military spending increased. He started to embark on all sorts of proposals and programs for internal improvements. He tries to drive us into war with Canada. And you think of what happened. Well, how, how, do you go, how do you go from an A, your first semester of college, to an F, your second semester? Clearly, there must have been some shift. And the shift that I at least I locate is as a result of the Louisiana Purchase. This huge acquisition of land that wasn't even constitutional according to Jefferson's strict constructionism, right? His strategy to interpret the Constitution strictly. He himself realized it wasn't, he wanted to push for an amendment, then he gave it up, but it was just so much land, hundreds of millions of, of acres of land. He got corrupted. He wants to keep all this land into the country. And what does he start to do? Well, he starts to push for all sorts of policies that enlarge the empire, right? He starts pushing for internal improvements to bind the East with the West, starts pushing for bailouts to speculators of land in the Southwest, so on and so forth. And that this is really just a downward spiral as a result of this Louisiana purchase, right? So it's 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 a big fan of Jefferson's first presidential term, except for the Louisiana Purchase. And then after that, it all goes down. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. We help each other when we don't mean to. That's what we call the invisible hand. Something no politician understands. Just leave it up to supply and demand and follow. 
And I should mention, we always hear these days, the Republicans complaining that the last Democratic president, quote, gutted the military. Jefferson really did gut the military in that first term. He cut it by some places I've read as much as 90%. But as you said, things get out of hand in that second administration. What I found very interesting was your description of the Jacksonians and them being much more rapidly free market, at least at the beginning, than even the Jeffersonian Republicans. Yeah, absolutely. I think the Jacksonian movement is America's most successful libertarian, small government movement, whatever you want to call it. I think they were more successful than the Jeffersonians. The Jacksonians certainly had their flaws, but they were able to whittle away much of American cronyism at the time, under which was all encompassed under Henry Clay's so-called American system of central banking, protective tariffs, internal improvements. Jacksonians, they, they got rid of the Second Bank of the United States. They instituted the hard money independent treasury. They secured free trade. They paid off the national debt, decreased government spending, decreased you know, the, the internal improvements on the federal level. They did all these, all these great things. And I don't think they often, they, they don't really get enough recognition for this. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from them, right? A big reason why I think they were more successful than the Jeffersonians is they used executive power to accomplish their goals. So they would, they really transform the executive branch because the Jeffersonians wanted to reform the government through the legislative branch, right? They wanted to reform it through Congress. Initially, advocates of small government were very anti the executive because it conjured up, you know, old nightmares about the British king. But by the 1820s, 1830s, reformers realized, they say, we're never going to get anything done through Congress. All these politicians, they're just going to keep supporting and voting for pork and special interest legislation. They're so concerned about elections and re-elections. This ain't going to work. What we need to do is start vetoing that legislation using the presidency, right? So using the president's veto power and rotating out cabinet officials, they can accomplish things. And that's exactly what they did. That's what they did on the federal level, and that's what they did on the state level. And if you look into the future of successful, quote, you know, free market or small government presidents, you know, the next big one is really Grover Cleveland. He really used the Jacksonian model of just vetoing um, government expenditure bills related to a veterans payment, veterans pensions, et cetera. So that Jacksonian strategy of reform through the executive uh, has a lot of strengths to it. Now, unfortunately, the same problems apply because in order to reform the government through the executive, you're increasing the power of the executive. You're making the president more powerful. You're increasing the influence the president has over the, the legislative process. That corrupts the president, right? It makes them more susceptible to now try to enact their own special interest legislation. And that's what happened ultimately with the Jacksonians with the Mexican War. But by far, Jacksonians, the most successful at getting rid of cronyism. This is not somewhere your book goes, but I wanted to just throw this out to you because this comparison has been made between Jackson and Trump. And Jackson, in a lot of ways, is like Trump. I think we'd like a lot more about Jackson than we would about Trump as libertarians. 
but he was awful on a lot of things, but he was good on some things. And it's kind of like the same idea. I think a lot of libertarians supported Trump like, well, he's like a hand grenade. Let's just pull the pin and throw him in there and see what happens. And Jackson went in there and killed the bank. That was a great thing. And then he did some other things that were not so good. Do you see any parallels there or is that overdone? I think there are parallels. As I was researching more and more about Jackson, uh, especially because a large part of the writing of this book was done during 2020, I was constantly reminded of Trump. And I know people have mentioned you know, connections between them. Jackson, well, one of my favorite Trump campaign slogans was the drain the swamp. Right. That was a, sure. it's a very Jacksonian campaign slogan. And Trump used that in 2016. And Jackson at many times more or less said the exact same thing, because one of the reforms that the Jacksonians were trying to accomplish again through the executive was to rotate out government bureaucrats and officials. So if some if, if they were to arrive in, into office, right, they were to win the presidency, they would not just treat various officials as, oh, well, they're just locked into these jobs. They're saying, no, well, we're actually going to replace you guys with our own qualified people, right? This is writingly referred to as the spoil system, but it was actually the old anti-federalist principle of rotation in office. In Trump was trying to do the same thing, right? He was trying to reform D.C. If you ask people who live in D.C., you know, and they work for the government, they, they sort of treat their job as if it's if it's, if it's sacrosanct. It's, it's been given to them. And it's something that now they can bequeath to their heirs, which is what <laughs> something that I, I think is, is not a healthy practice. And we don't want that in a free society. And I think he he, he was. Trump was similar in trying to reform the system from the outside. He was also constantly rotating out, not just he couldn't do lower level bureaucrats given the civil service laws, but he could do upper level cabinet uh, positions, right? And people were constantly leaving his 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 administration. This was similar to, to Jackson, who was always rotating out cabinet officials. And Jackson didn't really talk to his cabinet that much. He spoke to his informal cabinet who met in the kitchen, the kitchen cabinet. Trump kind of did the same thing. He kept things very in the family, so to speak, his immediate family. So there, there are parallels. I, 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 there, there are more parallels beyond that. There are differences. I, I do think the same thing that was motivating a lot of Trump Republicans in 2016 it was what was motivating a lot of Jacksonians in the election of 1828 and beyond, which they were just upset over big government. They were upset the direction the country was was going in, and they wanted to they wanted to change the system. I, I think there are a lot. Lot of parallels, and when you look at, I think when when future historians maybe Trump will run again and win, and he'll then he'll be like Grover Cleveland. I think there are a lot of parallels that historians will make between Jackson and Trump. So we could go on all afternoon here because this book is just jam packed. There's one last thing I wanted you to touch on, and that is here we are in 2022, and we're about to start another one of the Federal Reserve's busts out of their boom bust cycles. And we had a big one back in 2008. You go through the panic of 1819. And I remembered when I read Murray Rothbard's book on that, how familiar some of the things were. How were these panics, booms and busts different? And how were they similar under the old central banks compared to today? 
Yeah, so it's a good question. I would say the, the the panics were similar in that they were caused by a central bank or some sort of government encouragement to inflate the money supply. And it led to the familiar cycle of boom and bust. They were different in that, well, usually laissez-faire was practiced. During the recession, the government did not interfere. They just sort of let the panic take its natural course. They let the bust take its natural course. I think this is very good. Unlike today, where we're just inflating new bubbles, we don't even have a gold standard anymore to restrain the government. The Federal Reserve is pretty much has uncontrolled power, it can print as much money as it wants. And I think this has led to more severe business cycles than in the past, despite what you'll read about in a lot of economic history. The evidence is pretty clear that most of the business cycles were not that severe in, 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 in the past. So I think there are a lot of similarities. I think what's also fascinating is, especially with the Panic of 1819, this was a, a huge event that really reinvigorated the forces of hard money and caused a lot of people to be anti-central bank, pro-gold. Many of these individuals became Jacksonians, obviously, including Andrew Jackson and guys like Martin Van Buren. And I think we're, we're kind of in a similar crisis moment, so to speak, where a lot of people are now becoming more critical of the Fed. Unlike after the Great Recession, inflation has gone up. People are talking about it. This isn't something that is now just the you know, only Austrians talk about how inflation is going to come. Inflation's here. And the Federal Reserve, after artificially increasing the money supply and lowering interest rates in 2020 and 2021, they're increasingly admitting that, well, uh, we're going to have to do the opposite, and that's going to cause a bust, right? Before, if, if, if you asked people a year ago or the, the economic establishment, what they say, no, well, inflation's transitory. There's not going to be a recession. The Federal Reserve can engineer a soft landing. And now it seems more and more the opposite case where Powell is saying, well, actually, we're not going to be able to get a soft landing. Yeah. Something <laughs> I read the news and I go, I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> And so we are. History tends to repeat itself. Well, that's a great line for me to ask really the last question, which is, in your opinion, on one side, you could say we had this limited republic. It was federal. Most things were at the state level. The federal government was very limited. And the progressive era came along. The horses left the barn, and we've got this completely different animal. And then on the other side, you read your book and you say, you know what, we're just doing the same stuff over and over again that we've been doing since 1607. I'm not saying one or the other answer is the right one, but is it more of one than the other? Well, I would just say we've been in cronyism since the beginning, right? There has been special interest policies since this nation's founding, even since before this nation's founding. And we've been trying to reform the system. I think that our attempts to reform it in the past were more successful than now. But all I can say is, well, we just need to keep getting the good word out and just keep trying. So the old saying goes, one more time, but with feeling, I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to recommend everybody read this book. It's just packed with great information that challenges some of our views, makes our arguments a little more difficult, but that's good. It's easy to fall into making everything cut and dried and simple. If we just do this, it'll all be solved. Human nature never changes, but the book is called Cronyism, Liberty versus Power in Early America, 1607 to 1849 link to it on the show notes page. And thank you, Patrick, very much for spending this time. Oh, and thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it.
All right, friends, that's going to do it for today. Don't forget that if you haven't already, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. There's all kinds of additional content there, including my online courses, the first of which has already been uploaded and a lot more to come. So that's patreon.com slash Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Also, if you haven't downloaded a free copy of my ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, then just go to itsthefedstupid.com and download a free copy for yourself. It's also available in paperback at that link. And finally, if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.